Welcome to Sisters Inc., our podcast for and about women entrepreneurs, brought to you by Black Enterprise. I'm your host, Elisa Gums. Black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in America. And on every episode of Sisters Inc., we sit down with one successful CEO and share how she slays the challenges of being a Black woman in business. Today's episode is all about building our wealth. We're chatting with Chloe McKenzie, an author, researcher, and the founder of Black Femme, a nonprofit that is closing the race and gender wealth gap by working to maximize the wealth building capacity of Black women and girls. It has served around 72,000 women and girls of color in 22 cities across the country. Welcome to Sisters Inc. Chloe, and thanks so much for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So you have such an interesting personal story. Tell us about your background and what led you um, to go into this work. Absolutely. So for the longest time, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I never thought I would enter this wealth financial services space. Um, I grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland. It is one of only seven counties where black families have more wealth than white families. So in retrospect, I now understand why that has such a big influence on me. Um, But at the time, I grew up in a very unique world um, where if I had classmates who were trying to be oppressive or racist or whatever, all the black kids, we would kind of respond with retorts about like, well, we have bigger houses than you or whatever. It was very, very weird. At the same time, um, despite kind of growing up from a financial privileged perspective, I also grew up in a very abusive household. And this kind of interesting dynamic between um, having to both leverage my privilege, but also reject it to keep myself safe um, is so much a part of my story that I didn't really realize. Um, I was lucky enough to have outside support systems to kind of get me out of the situation, largely because I went to private school and, um, you know, then went to Amherst College, um, where, of course, because I thought I was going to be a lawyer, I studied legal theory. Um, I learned a bunch of different languages. And randomly one day, my best friend's father was like, please do not go to law school. Um, I want you to actually come be a trader on the trading floor on Wall Street. Um, And so we actually made a bet with each other. He said, fine, intern with me for one summer. And let's be real, Chloe, I'm kind of typecasting you because we need more women on the trading floor. So I need you to do me a solid. If you hate it, I will pay for your LSAT and all of your law school applications. If you love it, you'll probably end up with a full-time offer upon graduating. Um, So we can all find out what ended up happening. I was like, great, I'm gonna have my LSAT paid for. Like, this is great. Um, I ended up, becoming a trader on Wall Street. And it was so intellectually fascinating, but very quickly um, testing of my moral compass. Um, I was trading everything from mortgages, student loans, credit card receivables, and auto loans. So the average debt that Americans touch, especially when the height of the recession was taking place and new regulations were coming into the market. Yet there was still a lot of the same things that led up to the financial crisis still was happening um, in the space that I occupied. So to make myself feel better, I became a financial counselor at a homeless shelter. 
um, just because service is a huge part of my core and also how I have learned to heal um, some of the things that I've gone through. And that's where I really started to see this like very unique effect and struggle that black women specifically have against wealth inequality. So we know that wealth inequality is a problem, my issue with it is that when we talk about it, we only do it from one dimension. It's just the racial wealth gap or it's the gender wealth gap. Well, for black women who occupy both identities, like nobody's talking about us and our struggle is more unique. It's more damaging and more intractable than any other demographic in the country and arguably the world. And so I started to kind of uncover and unpack this idea that we're really not giving targeted solutions for black women specifically on their own kind of wealth building journeys and really starting to interrogate the relationship between wealth and power. Um, and then more recently in my research between wealth and trauma. And so I ended up leaving wall street. I, um, did a number of things in between like getting my master's degree and, you know, as black women do over efforting and all of these other different things. But I started my nonprofit in the process, um, which essentially had this like very ambitious and rigorous goal of closing the wealth gap specifically for black women, um, because black feminist tradition tells us that if we help those who are literally structurally situated at the bottom, we're really helping everybody. Um, so fast forward into I don't know, launching in New York City and thinking that that's all where it would stay and then growing to 12 states in three years. Now we're in, you know, close to 60 cities across the country. It's been an incredible journey, but I think the most important thing that I've done is constantly iterate over again, this idea between the inherent link between wealth and trauma. And what I've realized in my research that's now been published um, over the last 18 months is that we tend to have thought that financial education was the thing that's going to actually help us maximize our wealth building capability. Um, but financial education, actually, according to my research, has the smallest influence on our wealth. Um, actually, the coin that I or the term that I've coined financial trauma actually is the largest influence on our wealth building capability. And so the effort to close the wealth gap is really about healing. And so I'll stop there. Um, just so we can kind of talk about, I know there's a lot to unpack. Yes, there's so much to unpack there. And we're definitely going to come back to the concept of financial trauma. But first, I want to ask about something else, which you mentioned, which is intersectionality. Your work takes a very intersectional approach to the wealth gap. Um, can you lay out for us um, how the financial realities of Black women are unique? Yes. So the way that I describe it is this. Black women are structurally positioned to experience what I call economic violence more than any other demographic in the United States. What does that mean? We are more likely to be poor. We are more likely to be underpaid and under-resourced, under-invested in. Um, we are more likely to experience violence, whether that's physical, mental, emotional, etc., um, we have the highest rates of intimate partner violence. Uh, we're more likely to have to raise families on our own or occupy the kind of breadwinner role um, as an individual. Um, and then if we look at some of the statistics, you know, the median net worth, which is 
one number that captures your wealth um, is $5. So that means the middle number for how much wealth Black women possess is literally a single digit number. Comparatively speaking, and this is the intersectional part. So that's horrifying. From a racial perspective, it's going to take 228 years to close the racial wealth gap. That's across Black women, men, and our transgender and non-binary folks. Um, that's no surprise there because how long did slavery last? So you can kind of see how the numbers match. But if you look at the intra-racial data, for every dollar that a Black man owns in wealth, a Black woman only owns 42 cents. So again, it's not, the problem is very bad across racial lines, but when you add gender on top of it, we are seeing that it is much more disproportionately affecting Black women than any other demographic. Wow, those numbers are like mind boggling, really. Um, you mentioned financial trauma. I know it's one of your big areas of research. Um, explain to us exactly what financial trauma is and how it manifests in the life of Black women. Yes. So I know trauma is a word that I think we're becoming as a culture more comfortable talking about, but it's still very anxiety producing. <laughs> financial trauma is this. I see it as the cumulative effect or the cumulative wounding of all of the um, kind of adverse financial experiences that I see Black women being required to experience in order to attain what I call material safety, financial security, and wealth. So for example, one, where did all of the wealth in the Western world come from? Well, it came from stolen Indigenous land and Black bodies, right, through slavery. But if we, again, from an intersectional lens, if we take the historical trauma perspective, Black women birthed all of the wealth in the Western world. And then we are now situated in a moment, we birthed all of that wealth, but have no claim to it, right? So we are situated in kind of this very difficult socioeconomic circumstance. Um, and because of violence and rape Etc. we are seemingly being continued to be required to kind of put the economy on our backs, but still have no ability to capture some of the power, economic power um, that is critical to being able to sustain just ourselves. Um, and that effect is what creates what I call financial trauma. So we have historical trauma that I just explained we then have just like normal oppression that black women we deal with every day from the fact that like with COVID, um, black women have had to leave the workforce in higher number, women in general, but black women and women of color specifically have had to leave the workforce more than others because there's not adequate childcare or work conditions are like bonkers. And so it's kind of this context where to what extent are we being required to experience financial abuse or financial shaming or economic violence in the terms of, I'm requiring you to experience this very awful you know, thing in order for you to get the money you need to secure your basic needs. 
if you sustain that over such a long period of time, it creates financial trauma, um, which then gets embodied in our financial behavior and then ends up in limiting our ability to build wealth. So financial shaming is not a term that you hear every day. And, and I can't let that one go by because as I was reading about your work, I just find it also fascinating in the ways that um, we carry around a lot of these things, but we don't even realize them a lot of the times. So can you talk about that? Yes. And our cultural institutions, I think, are most at fault for how we financially shame others. Um, this is where, you know, it's become if you were to Google me right over the last few years, everybody's like she's the financial literacy go to. But I actually see financial literacy as one of the major problems because it's so deeply connected to financial shaming, which is to say that financial shaming is really the idea that the socioeconomic harm that you experience is your fault. It's more a behavioral problem than a structural one. So I always burst people's bubbles and people are like, why did you do this to me, Chloe? But a great example of financial shaming would be the song, No Scrubs. Now this is not to say you cannot turn it up, roll down your windows and have a jam session. But the idea that we have been kind of, it's, we've normalized this idea that if somebody is struggling financially, it must be their fault and their scrub and they are lesser or inferior because of that, that's where financial shame begins to come from. Rather than us starting to realize that the shame that we're experiencing is a part of this larger structural system to get us to think that this isn't something that was meant to happen, that like our struggle against wealth inequality is actually built into our policies. It's built into our education systems. It's built into our political systems. And what usually happens in other, you know, forms of trauma, right? Often trauma survivors blame themselves, right? We hold shame. Why did I do that? I should have done this differently. The same thing is true with our financial situations. And we don't tend to think about it from that perspective. But what we really need to start practicing, and here's one tip of how we can actually increase our wealth building capability right now, is putting that shame back where it belongs, the shame belongs on the person perpetrating the financial trauma, perpetrating the financial abuse, not us. So yes, we do have a responsibility to do what we can with the money that we have, but recognizing that the limitations and the structural barriers that are in place are not because of us. It's because of that's the way that our economic system was designed. And so therefore that shame that we're carrying should not be something that we take responsibility for, something that we can name and be aware of, but it doesn't belong to us. Wow. You describe yourself as a wealth justice advocate. What does that, uh, sorry, activist, a wealth justice activist. What does that mean to you? Wealth justice is, it's a commitment and it's, it's largely a commitment to a number of things. But the first and most important thing is our commitment to wealth justice is a commitment to healing, that we have a cumulative wound that is affecting our financial behavior, what I call financial trauma. And therefore, if we want to achieve justice from a wealth perspective and close the wealth gap, we have to heal our trauma. That's the first thing. One form of healing, as I just mentioned, is to hold the system's accountable for the violence, the trauma, the abuse, and the shame that they have thwarted upon us. 
So it's also a commitment to holding systems accountable and learning how to name and navigate through the experiences because unfortunately, again, in many ways, our system operates where we are required to experience some form of shame, abuse, or trauma in order to secure the funds that we need to live the lives that we want. Um, and then kind of the final thing is wealth justice is really just this larger commitment to recognizing that materiality, material wealth and things like that don't actually define us, um, but have defined the way that we have been either offered or denied safety, belonging, and dignity. So just because we don't have wealth right now doesn't make us any more inferior. It's just the reality is of our, of our systems is that we are now maybe more systematically denied the ability to secure safety, belonging, and dignity. But that's something that exists even without wealth. <clears throat> and so wealth justice is this, this act, it's a commitment, it's a lifestyle, it's a vibe um, that allows us to, um, to heal the, the trauma and the shame, the emotions that we carry um, because of a system that's been so systematically designed to violate us. I know that part of your activism, as you say, is holding the institutions accountable. Can you um, tell us in a tangible way what that looks like, your work with the education system, your work with policymakers? Sure. So there are uh, kind of four major contexts where financial trauma is perpetrated. So there's the education systems, namely through our curriculum. We are in a moment where everybody's attacking history, like real history, right? Um, and so one of the ways that we ensure that uh, we are addressing uh, financial trauma in school systems is to ensure that the curriculum is not actually transmitting that trauma to students um, in, its, in lessons and teaching and things like that. Um, so there's that. There's policymaking, very, very big context where financial trauma is perpetrated. For example, like telling people we shouldn't provide uh, you know, stimulus checks anymore, because despite the fact that we're still in an ongoing pandemic and an eviction crisis and things like that. So policy drives a lot of the ability for somebody to experience financial trauma. The other two contexts are our cultural institutions. So getting people to understand that like financial shaming happens a lot in our culture and we need to change that. Um, and then fam family systems, right? This is where historical trauma comes from. So particularly in the black community, I mean, how many of us have had grandparents or parents say, don't get a credit card or don't do this or don't do that. Whereas we know we need to effectively build credit in order to get utilities turned on and things like that. And so the things that we're being taught from our family members are not wrong, and I don't blame them for saying it, but think of where that's coming from, right? They had an adverse financially traumatic experience that they're now trying to protect us from. And so we do direct service work with families themselves so that they understand the financial trauma that they need to heal from, and then build stronger family systems that are know how to navigate our economic system. You started your organization, Black Femme, in 2015. Um, starting a nonprofit and starting a business are very similar in some ways and vastly different in other ways. What was the startup process like for you? Um, I mean, 
every entrepreneur, whether it's nonprofit or otherwise needs capital. Uh, so I was lucky enough that I was coming from Wall Street. So that's the funding that kind of got me started. Um, I then was able to secure a Kiva loan, uh, which is a micro lending firm that where you can get a 0% interest loan. So that was like very important to me. They're smaller dollars than what you're used to. Um, but that was kind of really the initial startup was figuring out how to take this idea, this very ambitious idea and find a place for it. But then how do you ultimately fund the vision? Um, which in many ways is another way we can define just wealth in general is like, what is your vision for peace, for stability, for whatever, and how do you fund it? And so that number is going to be very different for everybody. And in the business space, it's the same thing. If your vision is to reach just your community, okay, that's your vision. How do I then fund that? So that's always been a difficult process because again, as we know, black women are chronically underfunded. Um, in all of our business ventures. And so what do you do with that? And then we somehow maximize the impact with very little money. Um, and so that's been another part of what I also offer to entrepreneurs is to start to recognize how that is financially traumatizing as well. I experienced that still to this day. People would say I'm so successful, but I also continue to deal with the fact that this chronic underfunding is having an effect on me. Um, and my ability to make the impact I want to make. Your work is about maximizing wealth building capacity. How do you see uh, Black entrepreneurship fitting into that? Absolutely. I mean, in many ways, um, it is really Black women entrepreneurs who are kind of helping build the, I'm talking local economic systems that really need revitalizing. And so if we can, so remember the four pillars, cultural institutions, I consider that those local businesses um, that can, of course, eventually scale into something national. But a start, when we start small, that is a cultural institution that has the ability to affect people's wealth building capability. So one of the ways that we can think about this is how does your business, whether it's in tech or direct services or whatever, it does ultimately have an effect on the other people in the community where your business operates. So your business operating model can actually have an effect on somebody's financial trauma healing process. Um, so one of the things that we talk about and how I work with entrepreneurs as well is to think about that, how is it that your business and whatever that it's meant to do can also be a part of this larger commitment to wealth justice. Because as we become the strongholds in our smaller communities and our economic systems, that's going to have a ripple effect um, that goes largely beyond just the small system that you're a part of. You mentioned that Black women business owners are chronically underfunded, woefully underfunded, I always say. Um, are there other systemic problems that you see or that you're addressing that are creating disparities for Black women entrepreneurs? Yes. And I I mean, I guess this is still in like the funding realm, but just the end to end process of securing funds is rife with financially abusive practices. Right. So um, one of the things that I'm doing to address this is I work with funds and things like that, and I actually audit their due diligence processes. So some funders will run a background check on people understandably so for certain things that like if you have a history of like sexual assault of course these are things that like 
you shouldn't be funded for. At the same time, a lot of what happens is there's nothing bad on the person's quote unquote record, but they see their credit score, for example. And because they're using these antiquated ways of, of saying, oh, this person's bad with money, they then don't fund where they don't think about the fact that like in certain communities that have been purposely ignored, some communities and family members have had to like put their kids social security number on the utilities to turn the lights on. And they were unaware of this. And there's just kind of no contextualizing of how any of this works. And so one of the things that I um, offer to obviously do these audits, and I'm very blunt about like, this is financially abusive, this is financially shaming, and this is how you can change your process to still do your due diligence, but like offer people the funding that they need. But the other thing, um, and this is really hard because I recognize my position of privilege, um, I, but I also offer to entrepreneurs to feel like you now have the lexicon and the language to name what you're experiencing throughout your funding process. If you feel as though that the process is being financially abusive, I want you to, to at least question how you might raise that with funders that you are working with. Because let's just be real. If there's one thing people don't want to be called in this country, it's racist. But the second one would be abusive, right? And so it does actually give you a lever, level of power and empowerment that we didn't have before because we didn't have the language. One of the things you also do is teach individuals how to navigate the larger macroeconomic system, which, and you call it like it is, is designed to make it more difficult for us to generate wealth. Um, so as we wrap up here, what tips can you share with the women listening, especially women entrepreneurs, either for navigating the system or for improving their own relationship with money? Yes, great question. First thing is uh, recognize that when... <laughs> We all, again, are predisposed to having a kind of difficult relationship with money because we're Black women. So just naming it, and usually those signs show up in our body. So it's something you necessarily think about, but it's like, mm, my hands are sweaty or I'm contracting, right? So just being able to start to recognize that will actually start your healing process. The other thing is to recognize that, I hate to sound conspiratorial or like, you know, accusatory, but most of our economic systems that we have to engage with as entrepreneurs have business models that are meant to be abusive. I think people are trying to change that, but going into situations knowing that hopefully will help you reorient yourself of how you navigate that system. So for example, I use the bank account example because it's very quick, but it's not just that like, okay, we want to open a bank account for our business, but we also know that bank accounts, as opposed to personal accounts, have higher fees. And we also know that banks are legally allowed to reorder your transactions to um, basically increase the likelihood that you'll go into overdraft faster. And so these are things that we want to be able to know about certain business models and certain, you know, types of entities and institutions we have to deal with in order to keep our businesses safe. But that also has like this, again, what I call extra economic effect on our relationships with money, on what it is that we're doing with our business. And so just being aware that the system was designed in a certain way and we want to make sure that we know how to name it we know how to address it. And then ultimately, hopefully we'll be able to intervene in it. Well, thank you so much, Chloe, for sharing both your story and your wisdom with us today. 
Everyone out there, please take a look at the organization's website, blackfem.org. And you can also check out Chloe's site, chloebmckenzie.com. And you can follow Black Femme on social media at Black Femme Inc. Check out the podcast channel on blackenterprise.com to find Sisters Inc. and more podcasts from Black Enterprise writers, editors, and experts. Be sure to subscribe to Sisters Inc. on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And if you like what you hear, show us some love by leaving a five-star review or put a sister on by spreading the word. I'm Elisa Gums with Sisters Inc. for Black Enterprise. Thank you for listening.